Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Heading into this year's NFL playoffs, one of the trendy picks to reach Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas on February 11th are the Baltimore Ravens. If they were to reach the 58th edition of Super Sunday, it would be the team's third Super Bowl appearance since the team moved from Cleveland in time for the 1996 NFL season. The city of Baltimore with its great harbor and endless supply of crab cakes was always looked upon as a decent sports city. Yet every city that has multiple pro sports teams had that small window of time which all of their teams at the same time were legitimate threats of winning championships. Now this happened to the city of Baltimore during the latter part of the 1960s and into the 1970s. There was a period that ran from 1966 through 1971 where a team from Baltimore was a genuine favorite of winning a major pro sports championship. Now during that time, all three, the Baltimore Colts, the Baltimore Orioles, and the Baltimore Bullets were all legitimate championship contenders. Hello, I'm Dana Augusta, your host of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a sports history podcast you didn't know you needed. In this all new episode, we will talk about the city of Baltimore, Maryland and the great teams that called Charm City home during the late 1960s and into the early 1970s. There were the Baltimore Orioles, and during that time, they won five American League pennants and two world championships. Then, there were the Baltimore Colts, who played in two of the first five Super Bowls and were, were led by what many consider the greatest quarterback ever. And then, there were the Baltimore Bullets that featured back-to-back NBA Rookies of the Year and one of them became the last player to win both Rookie of the Year and League MVP in the same season. Then later in the show, we'll send a shout-out to the centerpiece of Baltimore sports during that time, which was Baltimore's Memorial Stadium. It was a civic treasure that went by several different nicknames. The Old Lady of 33rd Street is one of them. But my favorite and more appropriate was one moniker coined by a Chicago sports writer as the world's largest outdoor insane asylum. It was also the site of so many great games and so many great players and also in December of 1976 it was the site of of all things a plane crash. Also we will look at what happened during divisional round weekend in the NFL playoffs including the matchup between two quarterbacks that are writing great second acts to their careers. And with that, we'll take a look back at the quarterback that had remarkable career turnarounds 
including one that became the first signal caller to lead two different teams to the Super Bowl. That and so much more on this all-new edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales Podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network. are back you're listening to the sports history podcast you didn't know you needed the historically speaking sports podcast a podcast that places a historical twist on today's sports headlines just a reminder if you happen to like what you hear and you want to hear more please do not hesitate to like and subscribe to the podcast and also you could just drop us a line here at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com Also, you can follow us on Twitter X at HistoricallySP2. And now, on to the main story of the episode. The Baltimore Ravens Ravens started this year's NFL season as somewhat of a team on the outside looking in. Sure, they played in a stacked AFC, especially the AFC South, with the likes of Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland. Sure, the Ravens had Lamar Jackson at quarterback, but this, but his postseason resume was not great. Heading into the playoff game this past weekend, the Ravens' signal caller was not stellar as a starter in the playoffs. And the story was the same. Lamar Jackson, sure, he's a great player, but in the playoffs where it counts, he comes up short. This season, the Ravens finished with the best record in the AFC, which was good enough to secure Home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Then, facing one of the hottest teams in the NFL, the Houston Texans, the Ravens punched their ticket to the AFC title game, where they will face the defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs at M&T Bank Stadium in downtown Baltimore. It will be the first AFC title game to take place in Charm City since 1971, when the Baltimore Colts defeated the Oakland Raiders 27-17 in the very first AFC Championship game that is known as the Duel in the Dust. For the city of Baltimore, the sports year of 1971 is truly special. That year marked the first time that one city was represented in the NBA Finals, the World Series, and the Super Bowl in one calendar year. 
It also marked the climax of the golden age of sports in the city of Baltimore. Between the year of 1966 and 1971, the teams that called Baltimore home were at or near the top of the standings and featured some of the greatest players ever in the history of sports in America. Now prior to 1966, the city of Baltimore was already a championship town. In 1958, the hometown Colts defeated the Giants in overtime in a game known as the greatest game ever played. And to make sure it wasn't a fluke, the Colts defeated the Giants again for the NFL Championship in 1959, this time in Baltimore for their second consecutive NFL title. Now, during the decade of the 1960s, the Baltimore Colts were one of the more consistent winners of the National Football League, mostly behind the play of quarterback Johnny Unitas and fellow Hall of Famers like Lenny Moore, Raymond Berry, and Gino Marchetti. Now, the Colts were this working-class hero type of team that played in a working-class sort of town. And right around that same time, Major League Baseball made their way back to Baltimore in the form of the Baltimore Orioles, and they were beginning to find their way and improve in the standings. They were led by former New York Yankees star Hank Bauer. The Orioles began to make moves on and off the field, and by the end of the 1965 season, the Orioles were rated a challenge for the American League pennant. Now, one of the moves they made off the field was, to tra was trading for former National League MVP outfielder Frank Robinson. Robinson was a National League Rookie of the Year and Most Valuable Player for the Cincinnati Reds and empowered them to the National League pennant in 1961. But in December of 1965, the Reds right fielder was traded to Baltimore for, pitches, for pitchers Milk Pappas and Jack Bausham and outfielder Dick Simpson. And by the next season, Robinson became the centerpiece of an attack that was poised for a pennant run in 1966. Now, along with Robinson, the Orioles had one of the youngest pitching rotations in baseball, highlighted by ace pitcher Dave McNally and a young temperamental 20-year-old named Jim Palmer. On offense, the Orioles were paced by Robinson, along with hard-hitting first baseman Boog Powell, third baseman Brooks Robinson, veteran shortstop Luis Aparicio, and center fielder Paul Blair. With that lineup, the Orioles finished with a 97-63 mark, their best record in franchise history to that point which also included their time as the St. Louis Browns. With their first pennant as the Baltimore Orioles, they faced off against the Los Angeles Dodgers with the likes of Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, Maury Wills, and manager Walter Alston. The Dodgers were the defending World Series champions, but the Orioles, led by series MVP Frank Robinson, swept the Dodgers four games to none for their first ever World Series championship thus beginning the glory years of pro sports in Baltimore. In and around that same time, the Baltimore Colts were still a power in the NFL. They still had Unitas calling signals, but the talent around them had changed, including the head coach. By 1966, the coach that led them to back-to-back -back titles, Weeb Eubank, was in Flushing Meadows in Queens, coaching the New York Jets and their flamboyant quarterback, Joe Namath. More on them in a minute. The coach that was charged with leading the Colts were a young, square-chinned coach named Don Shula. After missing the playoffs in 1966 and 67, the Colts ran through the NFL and did so without the services of Unitas. Journeyman quarterback Earl Morrow replaced Unitas for most of the 68 season and led them to Super Bowl III after shutting out the Browns 34-0 in the NFL Championship game in Cleveland. 
the Colts were almost a shoe-in to win their third, win the third Super Bowl, but their old coach and young flamboyant quarterback from Alabama named Namath had other ideas and defeated the Colts in one of the biggest upsets in NFL history. It was a big disappointment for the city of Baltimore, but as it turned out, the sports year of 1969 would be the one of the, for the fans of Charm City they would most want to forget. Later that calendar year, the Orioles, this time led by combative minor league second baseman named Earl Weaver, they returned to the World Series after dominating the American League. The nucleus of that 1966 championship team was still intact, but added Cuban hurler Mike Cuellar to the rotation. Baltimore finished at the top of the brand new American League Eastern Division with a record of 109-53, still the best single season record in Orioles history. After sweeping the Minnesota Twins in the American League Championship Series, the Orioles faced the New York Mets, another upstart New York team that was looking to shock the world. Yet Baltimore looked as if they would handle business after beating the Mets in Game 1 4-1. But the momentum would switch as the series' most valuable player, Tom Seaver, along with the likes of Don Clendenin, Ron Swoboda, Tommy Agee, and company, shocked the world and Baltimore by beating them by winning the series in five games. Yet amid the disappointment and obvious disgust to Baltimore fans, brighter days were indeed ahead. This would be the first of three consecutive American League pennants for Baltimore. They would win the World Series again in 1970 by beating Frank Robinson's former team, the Cincinnati Reds, led by Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, and Tony Perez, four games to one. However, the Orioles would come up short in 1971, losing to Roberto Clemente and the Pittsburgh Pirates at one of the best World Series no one really talks about in seven games. Yet, however, the calendar year of 1971 may have been the most exciting in Charm City and possibly the best 12 months of any sports city have enjoyed ever. That year started off with the Colts, back again in the Super Bowl against the Dallas Cowboys. The Colts still had Unitas, but Shula had left the Colts during the offseason to become the head coach of the Miami Dolphins, so he was replaced by former assistant coach Don McCafferty. The Colts finished the 1970 season with an 11-2-1 record, one game ahead of Shula's Dolphins. And after shutting out the Cincinnati Bengals and beating the Oakland Raiders in the playoffs, the Colts returned to the scene of the crime, the Miami Orange Bowl on January 17, 1971. The same stadium where they fell to the New York Jets just two seasons earlier. The Colts and Cowboys were teams that were haunted and even tormented by their past failures in big games. However, in this game, albeit in a sloppy, penalty-filled turnover fest, the Colts, thanks to Jim O'Brien's 32-yard field goal, defeated the Dallas Cowboys 16-13 to win their first and only Super Bowl as the Baltimore Colts, and erased the stain of their loss to the Jets just two years earlier. Or did it? During the late 60s and early 70s, the Colts and Orioles were enjoying success on the field that captivated the imagination of Baltimore. But there was another team that recently had begun to call Baltimore home was starting to acquire significant talent to challenge for a league championship. That team, the Baltimore Bullets. Now the Bullets began life in 1963 as the Chicago Packers of the NBA. Now think about this. I get the name and I know that Chicago had a lot of stockyards and meatpacking plants on the south side. Okay, I get that. 
But I would never know why the powers that be thought it was a great idea for Chicago-based team to be named the Packers. That's like having a team in Pittsburgh named the Ravens or a team in Los Angeles named the Celtics. But anyway, I digress. The Packers would change their name the very next season to the Chicago Zephyrs. Better, but not much better. And after the 1963 season, just two seasons in the Windy City, the Zephyrs would move to Baltimore and change their name to the Baltimore Bullets, named after an old American basketball league team that eventually joined the NBA, ultimately folding during the 1954 season. By the late 1960s, the Bullets were still struggling on the court, playing their games at the Baltimore Civic Center. In 1967, they finished 20-61, yet little did anyone know better days were on the way. In the 67 draft, the Bullets, armed with the second overall pick, selected a scoring machine from Winston-Salem State named Earl Monroe. That year, the Bullets improved. Along with Earl the Pearl, the Bullets also had five-time All-Star Gus Johnson along with Bob Ferry, Kevin Lockery, and Leroy Ellis, and head coach Gene Shue. In 1968, they improved by 18 games, but still finished 6th in the Eastern Division despite Monroe winning Rookie of the Year honors. The next draft for the Bullets would prove to be one of the most pivotal for a franchise in the history of the NBA. Already with Monroe, the Bullets, with the second pick again, selected Louisville center Wes Unsell, who would be the centerpiece for the Bullets for the next decade plus. Also of interest, the player selected ahead of him in that draft at the number one pick overall was Elvin Hayes of the University of Houston, and both would team up to win the championship for the Bullets in 1978. Unsell, who would win Rookie of the Year and League MVP, a feat only accomplished by Wilt Chamberlain, would team up with Earl Monroe and Gus Johnson and overnight, the Bullets would become a power in the NBA's Eastern Division. In 1969, the Bullets would finish with a record of 67-25, their first 50-win season in franchise history, but would lose to the New York Knicks in four games. The next season, the Bullets would go 50-32 and, and push the Knicks to seven games and ultimately losing in Game 7 in Madison Square Garden 127-114. But in that magical year of 1971, though, in Baltimore, the Bullets would not be denied. They battled through a grueling season just going 42-40 and 40, and outlasting the Philadelphia 76ers and the New York Knicks in two seven-game series to reach their first NBA Finals appearance of the 1970s. Now waiting for them, these, waiting for these very weary bullets was the powerful Milwaukee Bucks led by Oscar Robertson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The Bullets, with all Charm City behind them and their star players Gus Johnson, Wes Unsell, and Irma Rowe, unfortunately it wasn't enough, as the Bucks would sweep the Bullets in four games. That calendar year of 1971, a team from Baltimore reached the championship round in three of the four major pro sports in North America. It's not a bad year, but it was to be short-lived. By 73, the Bullets would leave for Washington, D.C. The coach would leave town 10 years later under the cover of darkness. And the Orioles would still be a perennial power in the American League for years to come, winning two more American League pennants and one more World Series in 1983. The Ravens have reached the AFC title game, this time hosting the game that is one step away from Super Bowl 58. 
The last time the AFC title game was in Charm City was the best of times for the city that sports was an integral part of its identity, just as important as its Harvard and Fort McHenry. Between 1966 and 1971, a team from Baltimore won two World Series along with four American League pennants. A team from Baltimore won one Super Bowl and two appearances to in that stretch and also add an NBA Finals appearance on top of that. Not a bad stretch to be a fan from Charm City. As we alluded to earlier, this weekend was the divisional round of the playoffs in the NFL. And the divisional round of the NFL has always been looked upon as the best weekend of the NFL season and possibly one of the best outside of the opening weekend of the NCAA basketball tournament. Four games were on the schedule and they didn't disappoint. In the opening game of the weekend, the Baltimore Ravens behind the running and throwing of quarterback and presumptive league MVP Lamar Jackson defeated one of the best stories of the regular season and opening weekend of the playoffs, the Houston Texans. The Ravens advanced to the AFC title game by beating the Texans 34-10 to host the AFC championship game for the first time since the team moved to Baltimore in 1996. Their opponents next week will be the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs edged the Buffalo Bills 27-24 uh, in Buffalo when place kicker Tyler Bass missed a 44-yard field goal with less than two minutes to play, unfortunately conjuring up images of Scott Norwood at the end of Super Bowl 25. With the win, the Chiefs, the defending Super Bowl champions, will travel to Charm City to battle the Ravens for the AFC title. Over in the NFC, fresh off of their dismantling of the Dallas Cowboys, the Green Bay Packers and the San Francisco 49ers squared off in rainy Santa Clara. In a back and forth struggle, the 49ers held off a pesky Green Bay Packers rally, holding on to a 24-21 victory thanks to a late interception by 49ers linebacker Dre Greenlaw, his second of the game, to seal the victory. The Niners will be at home for this year's championship game in the NFC, and they will be facing the darlings of the NFL playoffs, those Detroit Lions. Now, the Lions behind coach Dan Campbell have advanced to a place the Lions haven't been since 1991, the NFC Championship game. And in his back-and-forth struggle, the game was decided on a defensive play when linebacker Derek Barnes of the Lions intercepted a Baker Mayfield pass to secure the 31-23 win in Detroit. And to me, this was the most intriguing game of the weekend, and not because of the way it was played out or the long era of futility of the Detroit Lions team seemingly coming to an end, or just merely interrupted. To me, this game was very interesting because of the two starting quarterbacks and their stories. First, there's Lions quarterback Jared Goff. Goff was the first pick overall in the 2016 NFL Draft by the Los Angeles Rams out of the University of California. And by 2018, the Rams were a Super Bowl contender and after beating the New Orleans Saints in the NFC Championship game, albeit controversially, the Rams played in Super Bowl 53 where they ultimately lost to the New England Patriots. On the other side, there's Baker Mayfield. He, like Goff, was the number one overall pick himself out of Oklahoma and was selected by the Cleveland Browns. After a few seasons of mediocrity, Mayfield led the Browns to the playoffs where the Browns claimed a rare postseason win against their arch rivals, the Pittsburgh Steelers. 
Yet something happened on the long way for both quarterbacks that seemed to be on the fast track of being the faces of their franchises. Goff was traded away to the Lions in exchange for quarterback Matthew Stafford, who led the Rams to their first ever Super Bowl victory. Meanwhile, Mayfield was let go by the Browns and after stops in Carolina and Los Angeles, Mayfield this season ended up with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, looking to fill the shoes of one Tom Brady. Now, both quarterbacks are in the midst of great second acts of their career. Over the years, there have been some, some players that showed promise and had success with one team and then unceremoniously booted out of town, then resurrected their careers and became champions and some of them Hall of Famers. For example, Drew Brees. Once upon a time, he was the future in San Diego. In the, and, but a shoulder surgery, a shoulder injury, and the drafting of Phillip Rivers sent him packing to New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Breeze would end up with new head coach Sean Payton and, as they say, the rest is history. Then there's Kurt Warner. People already know his story and the success that he had with the then St. Louis Rams. But you have to remember, he played a season or two with the New York Giants, then was traded away to the Arizona Cardinals that seemed to turn his career around. He, along with Larry Fitzgerald, led the Cardinals to their first and only Super Bowl appearance, eventually losing to the Pittsburgh Steelers in Super Bowl 43. Another one of my favorites was the tale of Billy Kilmer. Now, Kilmer was a first-round draft choice of the San Francisco 49ers out of UCLA in the early 1960s as a possible replacement for quarterback Y.A. Tittle, who had moved on from the Niners and joined the New York Giants. Kilmer had a very, very promising rookie season with San Francisco, but it was derailed by an off-season car accident that threatened his career. After one whole season of rehab, Kilmer returned as the backup to John Brody and was eventually sent to the expansion New Orleans Saints. After struggling there for a number of years, he was traded to Washington to be a backup once again, this time to veteran quarterback Sonny Jurgensen. Yet Jurgensen was at the tail end of his career and would suffer a number of injuries which opened the door for Kilmer. Now, Billy Kilmer, who really didn't pass the eye test for a quarterback, he was short, stocky, and had somewhat of a sidearm delivery. But he was tough. He was the leader of that Washington team in the early, early to mid-70s that was known as the Over the Hill Gang and led them to Super Bowl VII. Yet of all the great comeback stories at quarterback, one of the best is the story of Craig Morton. Now, Morton was an All-American quarterback at the University of California in the mid-60s, and he was the first-round draft pick of the Dallas Cowboys in 1965. Morton played a total of 18 games, 18 seasons in the NFL, and was the first quarterback in NFL history to lead two different teams to the Super Bowl. Morton became the Cowboys' starting quarterback full-time in 69 after the sudden retirement of Don Meredith and eventually led the Cowboys past the 49ers in the 1970 NFC Championship game and to Super Bowl V where the Cowboys ultimately lost. He eventually was supplanted by Roger Starbuck the next in the next season as Starbuck would lead the Cowboys to Super Bowl VI. Yet midway through the 1974 season, Morton was traded away to the New York Giants and played there through 1976. In 77, Morton was on the move again, this time to the Denver Broncos. His arrival 
in Big D, the other Big D, the Rocky Mountain Big D, was welcomed with open arms, mostly by the arms of enthusiastic head coach Red Miller. And from there began the NFL phenomenon called Bronco Mania. That season, Morton's career took off. Armed with talented wide receivers such as Haven Moses and Rick Upchurch, the Broncos reached the playoffs for the first time in team history, posted upset wins over the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Oakland Raiders, winners of the previous three Super Bowls. Unfortunately, Morton's Cinderella season came to an abrupt end at the hands of the doomsday defense of the Dallas Cowboys in Super Bowl XII, but that season in 1977 was his most memorable. That year, Morton was named the NFL Comeback Player of the Year, and he would play for the Broncos until 1982, but his second act made him one of the most popular and important quarterbacks in Broncos history. There is an interesting postscript to Morton's career. While at California, his head coach was a man by the name of Marv Levy, who were going to have a long career in the NFL with several teams, but most distinctly with the four Super Bowl appearing Buffalo Bills in the mid-90s. Also on Levy's staff at Cal was a young offensive offensive coach, offensive assistant coach, that would also make a name for himself as a coach, more specifically in the Bay Area later on. His name? Bill Walsh. To finish off the program, we will send a shout out to a very famous and somewhat underrated stadium in sports history. That stadium was the sports cathedral and sports epicenter of Charm City. Of course, we're talking about Baltimore Memorial Stadium. It was a home field of the Baltimore Colts and the Baltimore Orioles for the better part of four decades. It was the site of so many great games and moments for the Colts and Orioles and their fans. Yet it is also the site of one of the weirdest incidents ever when shortly after a Colts playoff game in 1976, Memorial Stadium was the site of a plane crash. One of the many great moments in the history of that stadium that was called the Old Lady of 33rd Street and we'll talk more about it next right here on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice! In the Row 1 shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1 for access to the full Row 1 catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. 
Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. To conclude this episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, we do what we always do, and that is to send a shout-out to an individual or team or event in the world of sports history that has been maybe overlooked or forgotten about, but is very relevant even to this day and sports fans need to be reminded of. Now, earlier in the show, we talked about the city of Baltimore and their glory years as a sports city in the late 1960s and 70s. The gathering place for the Colts and Orioles faithful was a plot of land northeast of downtown called Baltimore Memorial Stadium. The stadium, known by several different names such as Venable Stadium and Babe Ruth Stadium, named after the Hall of Fame slugger for most notably the New York Yankees, who was also a Baltimore native. In the early 1950s, the stadium underwent major renovations and added an upper deck to its original horseshoe design to lure pro sports to the Charm City. Now, the Colts were former members of the All-American Football Conference and after a couple of years of being dormant, the Colts started up again and Memorial Stadium was their home. In 1953, the hapless St. Louis Browns of the American League unable to compete with the more established and more profitable St. Louis Cardinals, moved to Baltimore and rebranded themselves the Orioles. From 1953 to 1991, the Orioles called Memorial Stadium home, winning three World Series titles and six American League pennants. Meanwhile, the Colts played there until their infamous escape in the darkness, when the team left Charm City in the middle of the night in March of 1984 to relocate to Indianapolis. Now before then, the Colts would win three NFL titles and a Super Bowl while they called Memorial Stadium home. Both the Colts and the Orioles fans filled that edifice known as the Old Grey Lady of 33rd Street and also, and maybe more famously, as the world's largest outdoor insane asylum, a moniker coined by Chicago sports writer Cooper Rollo. Memorial Stadium was witness to some of the greatest moments and greatest players to ever play pro sports. For the Colts, it was the home of Johnny Unitas and Lenny Moore and Raymond Berry. It was also the home of Burt Jones and coach Ted Marchabroda and a young assistant coach named Bill Belichick. The Colts won the 1959 NFL Championship game there blanking the New York Giants in a rematch from the season before where they played the greatest game ever played. It was at Memorial Stadium when the Colts defeated the Raiders in a game known as the Duel in the Dust in the very first AFC Championship game. It was also at Memorial Stadium when Unitas and Joe Namath combined to pass for 872 yards and 8 touchdowns in a regular season game in 1972. It was also the site of the Ghost to the Post the epic double overtime AFC playoff game in 1977 when the Colts came up short against the Raiders. And then there was December 19, 1976. It was the AFC divisional playoff game between the Colts and the Steelers. The Colts would end up losing the game 40-14, but the story of that game 
was what happened after its conclusion. A former Baltimore City bus driver and part-time flight instructor named Donald Croner buzzed the stadium before attempting to land a rented Cherokee Piper single-engine aircraft on the field after the game. The result? He crashed the single-engine plane into the upper deck. Fortunately, no one was in the stands at the moment of impact, but the pilot sustained injuries and was later arrested for reckless operation of an aircraft. And then there are the Orioles. The Orioles' stay in Memorial Stadium was just as memorable and featured the likes of Boo Powell and Frank Robinson and Dave McNally, and Brooks Robinson and Jim Palmer and Earl Weaver and the incomparable Cal Ripken Jr. It was the site of the Pittsburgh Pirates captain Roberto Clemente's Game 7 performance in the 71 series and another Pirate captain Willie Stargell's World Series clinching home run in the 1979 Fall Classic. The Orioles would play there until the end of the 1991 season where they were moved to the brand new Oriole Park at Camden Yards, an old-fashioned style ballpark that would revolutionize stadium construction for a generation. In the later years, it was the first home of the new Baltimore Ravens and a team known as the Baltimore Stallions which became the first and only American-based team to win a championship in the Canadian Football League, the Grey Cup. Sadly, the stadium is no longer with us, but the memory that it, that it evokes and its place in sports history are truly unmistakable. And it was the center of sports greatness in the place cub dubbed Charm City. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast coming to you from the Bill King Memorial Studio in the Sports Wing of PM4 Enterprises located in suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. To get more content of Historically Speaking Sports, you can check us out on Twitter X at HistoricallySP2 or you can send us a line at Historically.Speaking.Sports at gmail.com. And if you have not done so already, please, please subscribe to the show. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Hell, tell a passerby on the street about us if you think they like sports history. And until the next episode, stay blessed, stay cool, and be your best in everything that you do. Peace. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. 
and don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.